And it is Wednesday at 8 Yes, it is. And you are listening to Music Biz 101 and more. On Brave New Radio 88.7 WPSC-FM on the campus of William Patterson, the university. This is Music Biz 101 and more. Trying to make the music biz better. We're your Music Biz 101 and more radio show and podcast. I am your professor, David Kirkville. Always here with your favorite doctor, Steve Marconi. How's everything going tonight, Steve? Not bad. Not bad. Beautiful day again today. We finally, uh, on the first day of autumn, got spring back or summer back. So it's been very nice. Yes, it's been beautiful. And how's the semester going for you? This is the busiest semester of my life. Really? Very busy time. Ah. Very early mornings. And then coming and doing this awesome radio show slash podcast. That's right. right. And who do we have tonight with us? We have two people with us. First, let's give our love, all of our love, to our producer of the night, Jess Frank. Jess Frank! Jess Frank! All of our love. All of it. Not just some. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jess. And then we also have a, our student co-host of the evening. Uh-huh. He is a fine young lad. His name is Cole Mozaleski. 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 Yep. There Mozaleski. we go. He's got a hard last name to say, but he's still an awesome fella. How are you, Cole? Good. Glad to be here. Why are you here? Why are you here at William Patterson, Cole? Uh, I was summoned to be here. and <laughs> The Lord said, Cole, you shall go to William Patterson University. Yeah. That makes sense with the Pope in town. Exactly. Yes. But what is your major? What is your major here? It's uh, pop music. Okay. And we learn a lot about the music industry in it. And I'm also minoring in music management. Ah, music mm-hmm. management, Dr. Marconi. And what's his job tonight? Tonight, his job is to read many and many and many tweets that we've gotten from our right. awesome listeners. It's not just the two of us tonight, is it? No. Oh. It's not even the four of us. Ah. We have a fifth wheel who is going to call in at any moment. His name is Stephen Witt. Wow. He's the author of How Music Got Free, Mm -hmm. which both of us read over the summer. I believe that book is still nominated for the book of the year in some categories still. It's a great book. Yeah. In fact, I won't reveal the ending, but it's a great book. Right. It, it ends with a nuclear holocaust. It's, it's kind of strange. But before we get into that, and before mm-hmm. he calls in, he should call in any minute, uh, we want to give special thanks to the Music Biz Association, Music Business Association. Mm-hmm. Um, we want you all to save the date for May 16th through 18th, 2016, when Music Biz goes to Music Biz in the Music City. We'll be out in Nashville With the Music Biz Association convention in May. Yes. Looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be great. And that is the leading convention in the country uh, for the music industry. And Mm -hmm. if this interests you at all, you should definitely go to uh, musicbiz.org, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you can find out everything you need to know about uh, the Music Biz Association and their convention. And um, also, we want to remind you to go to our website, Every day, all the time, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for our newsletter. comes out every Sunday. Gives you all the info you want to know about the biz. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And, of course, if you like what you hear right now, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. Look up Music Biz 101 and more, and you will be able to hear podcasts of all these incredible interviews. And how many do we have now? We have more than we're... Hitting 50. We're in the 50 range wow. at this point. God, and we're still talking to each other. I know. Incredible. Well, only on the air. Off the air, cats and dogs. Right. Doesn't work. Right. Oil and water. Exactly. 
flesh and blood. All over again. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Has, has our uh, caller called in? All right. Stephen Witt is about to call in. Jess Frank, the producer, is right now working on all the technical details to make sure that Stephen Witt... Working can, the phones. Yeah. She, she's working hard right now. Okay. There, Stephen. Hey. There was a very. Yes. Put the phone down. That's me. I'm I'm beaming in from space. Uh, <laughs> uh, very good. Very good. Those, those sounds you hear are my me my spacecraft departing. Uh, but I'm still here. There we go. Stephen Witt. Stephen Witt's here. We're clapping for you, Stephen. <laughs> Stephen Witt. Yay. Sorry about that, Stephen. Technical difficulties. No we would like to apologize to you, Stephen, to your publisher, to your agent, to your family, <laughs> current, your future, past, all the ancestors for uh, that. Sure, sure. Uh, Maybe your listeners as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, you know, everyone yeah, listening sure. to technical yeah. difficulties. They're, they're used to it. Okay. There we go. They, they don't mind. It's, it's everybody else who's, who's a little too sensitive. But I'm uh, Professor Phil Peer, and then we have uh, Dr. Marconi. Say hi, Dr. Marconi. Hi, Dr. Marconi. There, there we go. And we have a student co-host, Cole Muzzles, Muzzle, here with us, <laughs> and uh, an unpronounceable last name. But we're all here for you because we all read um, How Music Got Free, and we are looking forward to speaking with you about it. All right. Terrific. Great book. Having me. Absolutely. Great book. So, um, who would have known that it got boiled down to one person actually yeah. uh, doing this kind of uh, clandestine operation, actually maybe in the beginning just for the kick of it, and then started to make some money from it? Yeah, it's such a crazy story. Uh, you know, I started out in, uh, in college downloading all these MP3s to my hard drive. This is back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And over like 10 years, I probably got 100,000 of these things, just pirated, you know, music. And, I, and one day I was looking at my enormous library of songs, and I sort of asked myself, where did it all come from? Uh, and as I started to investigate the answers to that question, it turns out you could really trace most of it uh, back to just three people. Uh, Carl Heinz Brandenburg, the German inventor of the MP3, uh, Doug Morris, who was basically running the music industry at this time, and then the guy you mentioned, the, the most powerful of them all, uh, a factory worker at a compact disc plant in North Carolina, mm-hmm. who over the course of 10 years leaked out about 2,000 discs, posted them to the Internet weeks and months ahead of their official release dates, and from there sort of seeded the entire music piracy revolution. So if you ever downloaded music during that period, uh, you can trace that all back to this one guy. His handiwork is probably on your hard drive. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting how you keep, as you just mentioned, that how you keep those three stories going throughout yeah. the entire book. Um, yeah, well, I really wanted to be able to get all sides of what happened. So mm-hmm. I wanted the perspective of the technologist, the inventor. That's Karl Heinz Brandenburg, the German, who really was a brilliant guy who came up with a kind of psychoacoustic tricks that the MP3 employs to compress a compact disc. Uh, you know, the, the business, the music business side, which, you know, nobody loves these guys to begin with, but, you know, they're out there and, and they make a difference. So, you know, guys like Clive Davis and, and Ahmet Erdogan and Jimmy Iovine had a lot of press. Mm-hmm. The most powerful of them all was this guy, Doug Morris, who'd really avoided uh, publicity for, for decades, even as he sort of consolidated the entire industry of rap music under one corporate umbrella. 
And then, like I said, this last guy who was just a factory worker leaking disks out and uploading them to this secret conspiracy of online enthusiasts who had infiltrated the entire music industry supply chain, almost like a spy ring. Yeah, and it was almost, uh, well, I think, as you said in your book, it wasn't really for monetary satisfaction, this ring. They were just doing it because they could, and they wanted to share these uh, releases for a long time before they started to get that bug that we could really put this stuff out weeks ahead of time. Yeah, really, this was a subculture, uh, a subculture of piracy mm-hmm. that went back to the 80s. It's called The Scene, uh, short for the wares scene, and these guys started by ripping off software and games in the 80s, cracking the copyright protection mechanisms, and then sending them through the mail uh, on floppy disks, mm-hmm. and later, when the technology became available, through the Internet as well. Uh, in the mid-90s, they started to look to, to different forms of media, so they started you know, feeding magazines into scanners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, they, they noticed that uh, these sort of new technologies were available that would allow them to compress uh, compact disks to maybe 90, 90 or 10% of the original size. Um, so they would take these things, take a song, rip it off the CD maxi single using the MP3 compressor, and then put it on three or four floppy disks and send those through the mail. That's how the earliest uh, music was pirated. Mm-hmm. Of course, very quickly, consumer home Internet became available. And once that happened, it opened the floodgates. Uh, by the time I arrived at the college campus in 1997, uh, you could find sort of secret servers everywhere that were just packed with pirated music, and usually all the hits of, of, of the year, and usually before you could buy them in stores. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, we and they were almost... able to do that by, as I said before, infiltrating the supply chain. So in this conspiracy, they started to recruit guys who worked at record stores and would have sort of advanced access to inventory, and music journalists who would get advanced review copies, and even radio DJs. Uh, and those guys would leak their stuff to, to this sort of conspiracy online in exchange for the information that other people were leaking. Mm-hmm. So we... We almost had just the MP2. What's the story right. of that? So the, evolved the, the tech three. side of it is, is also interesting as well. In the 80s, and that's how far back the idea for something like the MP3 goes, uh, a guy named Dieter Seitzer came up with a scheme, 1982, same year the compact disc debuted. He thought the compact disc was inefficient, and as long as you were digitizing the music anyways, uh, why not store it on a centralized computer somewhere? Then people could call in their telephones, request, using probably a keypad, punch pad, or maybe even a dial tone phone, mm-hmm. uh, the song they wanted to hear. And then you could stream it back to them over their telephone lines, which would be hooked up to the stereo. So almost exactly like something we have today called Spotify, except, you know, it's 30 years earlier, the first real proposal for a streaming music service. Mm-hmm. The problem was that the compact disc digitization was way too large. They couldn't port it down the pipe, and they needed some method to shrink it. Multiple teams were deputized to try and figure this out. One of them was Karl Heinz Brandenburg's team that we know as the MP3. But they had these bitter rivals who invented almost identical technology called the MP2. Now, the MP2 was working with Sony and Philips, so they were better connected. And even though their technology wasn't quite as good, they managed to outmaneuver Brandenburg and sort of leave him for dead. 
So if you can imagine this is sort of like the format war of the VCRs in the 80s, then mm-hmm. the MP2 was VHS and the MP3 was Betamax. So Brandenburg, in desperation, sort of couldn't sell this thing for, for love or money. He just was not getting anybody interested. And in the mid-'90s, posted it online for free public download. And that's when the pirates got a hold of it. And that's when the digital music piracy revolution really started. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know of Napster as being the, sure. the first facilitator. Uh, but that's not really true because there was there was this underground that was doing things prior to that. And Napster was a key facilitator, but what it did was it brought this underground to the mainstream. Uh, the guy who coded Napster, the guy who first wrote it, was a Northeastern University college freshman named Sean Fanning. Right. He and I are almost exactly the same age. We both showed up to college at the same time experimenting with these weird underground chat channels and finding all sorts of illegal material on them. You know, movies, games, music, even pornography. It was all there. And, you know, it was free. Mm-hmm. So what Fanning noticed was that although it was all there, it wasn't organized in any fashion. And most people couldn't figure out how to get into one of these channels. So he built a piece of software that would go and scan everybody's hard drives and let them share in mass. Okay, so peer-to-peer software. He deputized another guy named Sean Parker, who he'd met in one of these chat rooms, to be sort of the public face of this company. Uh, I'm sure your listeners will know Sean Parker. Uh, Justin Timberlake played yeah, him in the Facebook course. movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these two together uh, debuted their software in 99, and that brought what had really been this kind of bizarre underground phenomenon right to the mainstream. Uh, and by 2000, it was beginning to really eat into the record industry's profits, And it also created the expectation for about a decade there that music online just should be free. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Napster did have a server, though. They did store, if I remember correctly. Napster never stored anything. What they were, essentially, was a gigantic card catalog for a Mm -hmm. distributed library that existed around the world on people's hard drives. Mm -hmm. Now, the legality of that arrangement was not immediately apparent. Can you do this or not? And the record industry sued them, saying, well, no, it's not. Uh, The case ended up going to a federal appeals court. I think it was appealed twice. Finally, the judge said, no, these kind of organized catalogs of pirated material, even if you aren't personally hosting them, which Napster was not, you're still liable for it. And so Napster was forced after that ruling to shut their servers down. Right. But very quickly, you know, tons of gray market entrepreneurs entered the space that they'd left. These were companies like Kazaa and LimeWire. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tended to be headquartered in like Vanuatu and, and states that didn't really respect <laughs> copyright law. They were kind of fly-by-night, quasi, maybe gray market entrepreneurs. Uh, and that was the period when the music industry really started to get hurt by this. Uh, in 2001 or 2002, uh, another guy named Bram Cohen, who worked for one of these things, came up with a new method called the torrent. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, that became the preferred uh, version for sh- sharing stuff peer-to-peer online and led to the creation of sort of the classic pirate sites like the Pirate Bay. Yeah. And meanwhile, Doug Morris et al. were making so much money on CDs and the markup on They had them. been. Yes. Yeah, so this is this is the thing. They, th- their industry had been saved 
in the 80s by the introduction of the compact disc. Mm -hmm. They'd really been struggling in the early 80s, partly because of uh, home, the introduction of the dual-head home cassette tape deck, which let listeners at home tape stuff off the radio and also copy it hundreds of times and distribute it uh, mm -hmm. to their friends you know, in an earlier form of bootlegging. Now, the problem with that method is that once you got the tape to the second or third generation, the sound quality really wasn't there. But when you take it online and do it digitally, there's no degradation. You can make a million copies of the MP3. It'll still sound the same. It's bit perfect. The digits are there. Uh, and that really started to hurt them. Now, Brandenburg, the inventor of the MP3, had come to these guys in 1997 and said, listen, you've got to wake up to this. You've got to start implementing this stuff. But the music industry had their heads buried in their sand. As you were pointing out, they were, no, they were enjoying these enormous profits from the compact disc, uh, which cost you know, less than $2 to manufacture, and which they were seeing at realized retail prices of $14 and above. They didn't want to undercut that with some new technology. But ultimately, their resistance destroyed the industry. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, explain about when Brandenburg came to uh, the U.S. and he met with the RIAA, and uh, maybe Hillary Rosen was in that meeting. Can you kind of explain what happened with that meeting? Because you, you go into it in the book and the reaction of the RIAA and then Brandenburg's reaction. Sure. This was very interesting, actually. The, the industry was aware that this technology existed, and there were a couple points of recalcitrance. One, and, and some of them were wrong, and some of them I think were right, uh, one was that the studio engineers hated the MP3, and they still do, by the way. Uh, these are the guys who master the albums. Uh, historically, they sat at a soundboard pushing the knobs around. Now they sit at a laptop. Uh, their job is to make sure that the album sounds great from a sonic perspective. Not the music so much, but just the, the audio quality of it. And when they listened to the MP3, they could hear sort of obvious audio degradation. It wasn't quite as good as the compact disc. And so they, they were sort of snobs. They were audiophiles, and they advised against using it. Now, this was a terrible decision because the history of recorded music shows that there's always a trade-off between audio fidelity and mobility. And the consumers always pr prefer mobility. Most people would much rather have the ability to listen to music when they're running in the park than sort of sitting in their perfect acoustic cave with their $5,000 speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, but these guys didn't really understand that, and they made the wrong decision. Now, the other point of resistance was that the music industry was saying, well, gee, if we start selling these files digitally online, people will just buy them as singles. They'll no longer buy these whole albums, and that will really hurt our album sales. Because we're having bands like Hanson or LFO, and we're having one or two singles off those hits, and then we sell 13, 14 million albums when all anyone really wants to hear is one song. So when eventually they did start to sell digital singles, it really hurt them a lot. But they were forced to do it. You know, it wasn't until 2003 that they finally got on board. Mm -hmm. Now, if we go back to 1980, in the early 80s, and with that home taping, Radio was really not on the label side either, were they? Because they were announcing. Radio and labels have always had a, 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 a tough relationship. Right. In the it. earliest days of radio, they would get sued all the time, actually, because mm -hmm. the labels considered it paying, um, you know, the radio playing your song a form of piracy, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, they struck an agreement, uh, and this is only in the U.S., I should say, 
where the radio pays a really tiny amount uh, of royalties to the song. I mean, it's, it's almost nothing. Uh, and in return, the idea was that this would be publicity uh, for the album. So if we play your single, people will go out and buy the album. Mm-hmm. And that model worked. Uh, you know, it worked for maybe 40, 50 years. Uh, it doesn't work anymore, that's for sure. Uh, and so as we move away from sort of, you know, classical terrestrial radio and onto sort of digital radio and, and streaming services, uh, those arrangements are being rewritten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, our student, Cole, uh, would like to ask you a, a two-part question via tweet. And explain who tweeted. All right, let's do it, about. Cole. Okay, so um, a student here, William Patterson, named uh, Nick Minieri, asked two parts to a, a question. He said, um, why were the media pirates, such as a uh, scene, not concerned with hurting the artists that they liked? Well, uh, they felt, first of all, a lot of the media pirates uh, were young. Uh, They were probably younger, actually, than some of your students who are listening to this. Mm -hmm. They tended to be teenage boys, uh, mostly, especially when they started. And so there's a thrill-seeking aspect here. And if you know teenage boys, they don't spend that much time thinking about consequences of things, usually. Hmm. So there was a sort of thoughtless aspect to it, I think. Second... There was just a ton of hostility, not so much toward the artists, but toward the media industrial complex, which had been really forcing a lot of stuff down people's throats. I think there was a perception that the label bosses especially were these rip-off artists who fleeced the people that they signed. Um, you know, it wasn't a very honest industry, and so uh, if you could hurt them, it was a way to stick it to the man. And I should say a lot of people still think this way. Okay. Um, and what's the second part? His second part was, um, could the labels have combated the Internet pir- piracy by beating them to the Internet by setting up online album sales sooner? No. In the end, I don't think there was anything they could do. And here's why. For years, they'd been, sell- they'd been profiting from the deadweight loss of selling these compact discs that it didn't really work as albums, okay? So sometimes people put out great albums, and you're happy to buy the whole album. It's a coherent suite of songs. You love it. But the kind of stuff that the music industry was really making the most on was just singles that were packaged as essentially $14. So no matter what you did, Internet technology was going to disaggregate the single from the album. It was probably impossible to stop it. Think about it this way. No matter what they did, no matter what anybody did, the music retailers, the Sam Goodies and the uh, Tower Records of the world, were going to go obsolete. Okay, There was no saving them. Just as many bookstores are going obsolete now, just as Blockbuster Video went obsolete. Okay, Piracy didn't do that. A shift in technology did it. So when that happens, if most of your model is based on profiting from the physical sale of retail goods, there's just not anything you can do to stop it. Well, I think also there was uh, something else that happened, too, and I think the album suffered from that. And that was, and I think probably it started in hip-hop more than any other genre, was this idea that we're going to have seven different producers on one album and maybe X amount of songwriters and so on. So there was no way that any type of a concept really could occur in nine out of ten 
albums as they were being produced by late 90s, early 2000. And I don't think the record industry cared. I think they thought it was just a, another way, an evolution of producing records. But I think in a long run, that had a considerable effect on album sales as well. That and the producers became much more powerful themselves. Yeah. Uh, technology really enabled the producers to almost take over the record. And it, they turned the artists almost into, you know, sort of interchangeable commodities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the artists really lost the, the war to the producers. And I think you're right. You, you listen to a lot of albums now, and this is particularly true for pop albums. It really is just, there's no coherency to the thing. It's just a kind of random collection of, of songs, you know. Writing credits can extend to uh, 11 or 12 people. I was looking at the song Timber today, which is not the greatest song in the world, but it's a, it's a hit. Mm. Um, Timber had, I think, I counted 12 people wrote Timber. That's mm-hmm. how many people got credited with a writing credit on Timber. Mm-hmm. So you, you sort of turned it from what had historically been this much more direct relationship between the artist and the audience into really this kind of collaborative a productive effort to turn out a very slick but very corporate product. Mm-hmm. Good point. That's where the hits started to come from, but obviously that's not an artistic vision, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think the, the 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 nature of the sound changed a lot. It's especially mm-hmm. true for rap. You know, rap singles are dynamite, but uh, there's very few good rap albums. Almost you know, almost nobody listens to a whole rap album. Mm-hmm. 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 Next tweet. Okay, we have um, another question. This one's from Carrie. Uh, she says, do you believe it is possible to end piracy, or is there a never-ending war between the music industry and the masses? In the book, I compare it to the war on drugs. Uh, so in the end, it's sort of unwinnable. Um, having said that, the, what they can do, and, and they are doing this, is services like Spotify and Apple Music, once people subscribe to them, they stop pirating more or less completely. One of the reasons the pirates succeeded so well in the 2000s is that they were filling a vacuum in technology that the industry refused to. People wanted MP3 technology, and they wanted iPods and stuff, and the music industry was recalcitrant. They didn't really embrace it. It was a huge mistake. It cost them billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, I think like- now they've learned from that mistake. Uh, I think anybody who works at a music label now is looking and thinking critically uh, about distribution 10 or 20 years down the road. That's not to say they won't make other mistakes, but the one that they made in the late 90s, they'll never do that again. This is a cautionary tale that everyone in the industry now understands. So what they're doing now is they're actually beating the pirates uh, on streaming by offering a superior technological service. You know, Spotify is better than torrenting, in my opinion. It's a, mm. it's a more satisfying experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with it, though, is that they haven't figured out how to economically make it work. Uh, and whether they will is still an open question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Stephen, I have a question for you. It may be a little bit deeper anything, but maybe you can answer it. So since we went from, you know, like records to CDs to now spot well, MP3s, then Spotify... What do you think is going to come next? Because as like humans and everything, we actually want everything now. Well, it's a tough question because you're asking me at the beginning of the streaming era. So imagine you asked me in 1984 or 1985, what's going to come next? You know, I would not have predicted the MP3. <laughs> um, 
we're still so early on streaming. It's uh, you know asking what's going to come next 10 or 15 years down the road. I can't possibly predict. What is happening, though, and this is a, a real fundamental shift, for a long time we thought about music, recorded music, as a commodity, something you went out and bought uh, and physically owned it, either, or, or later you digitally owned it. Uh, I don't think it's that way anymore. It's evolving and morphing into something more like a utility, uh, an omnipresent you know, sort of service that's always in the air. We pay to subscribe, and then we pull it down as needed. Uh, but then, I, you know, what's going to replace that someday? It's impossible to say. Okay, so it's like Back to the Future, and they think we have like hover carts and everything in 2011. Yeah, we're not. You asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, nothing. like, yeah. I, it's impossible. It's too far ahead. Now, now, if there was something on the horizon, I would, I would love to see it. But because we're really just getting started with the streaming service uh, revolution, and most people do not subscribe to one yet, it's going to be a while before some new technology supersedes that. I would imagine. And it's interesting that you state we are in the beginning because there are a lot of, I guess, early entrants to it in terms of streaming retail besides YouTube and Spotify. But there is mm-hmm. Apple Music, there's Tidal, there's Deezer, which just announced today I think that they're going to go public. Mm-hmm. There are um, other services as well, and it's interesting how they're all kind of going after the same audience to a different with sort of different models within the streaming uh I think I can safely predict that many of these will not exist in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for these services to differentiate themselves. They're all offering the same price for the same library of music at the same you know streaming fidelity. So what's really the difference? And you know, in terms just just to research this, I've subscribed to four or five of them. Uh, so I'm on Tidal, Spotify, Apple Music. Google will be uh, premiering something called YouTube's Music Key later this year, I think. Uh, that will be the newest one. And the truth is, the differences are minor. They're cosmetic. Okay, some artists aren't on some services and whatnot, but it doesn't end up being why you use it or don't. Uh, it's it's really, they're just packaged commodities. So it's going to be tough for these guys to, to figure out which one is the winner. Uh, I imagine what will happen is that one or two will sort of take the lead and end up dominating the industry. But I wouldn't hazard a guess as to whom. You know, obviously Apple's very powerful. Google has an enormous amount of power and money to burn. But Spotify still is the market leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, further down the chart, Title looks doomed to me. I mean, who knows about Deezer? All right. Uh, it'll be hard, I think, for all of those second-tier ones. Now, uh, Apple, I think, probably in the last week, just put out that new video ad for streaming. And... Um, it's the first one ever. Uh, Spotify never did it. No one actually has put out an ad where, uh, you know, the three women are, I don't know if you've seen it or not, Mary J. Blige and Kelly Washington, and uh, the three women are around, and they're uh, commenting how easy it is now to have a playlist. I don't know if you've seen okay. it yet. I uh, haven't seen this advertisement oh, yet. Well, uh, it's, they've done, they're doing an advertising blitz right now. Yeah. Uh, my impression is that they haven't gotten as many subscribers as they haven't re- released any official no, numbers. Of but my surprise, my impression is they haven't gotten as, as many subscribers as they were hoping for so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's the thing: it is really just cosmetic differences between these services so far. But if that's all it is, then that's a fight that Apple has shown in the past they can win. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very good at cosmetics. 
So it could be them. Uh, if I had to pick one right now, I'd, I'd stick with Spotify, but that may just be because I'm used to it. <laughs> but what's interesting about this ad is Apple's whole sales pitch when Apple Music began, especially through Jimmy Iovine, was, and this I think goes back to when it was Beats before Apple bought it last year, was that mm-hmm. um, it was going to be human curated. All these playlists mm-hmm. were going to be made up by humans. And in this ad that we saw with, with Kerry Washington and uh, Mary J. Blige, I forget the third woman, um, they're talking about how App, uh, how this was put together through programming. Basically, they didn't use the word algorithm, but that's basically what put these mm-hmm. playlists together. And they kind of did an about-face that the masses don't even know about because don't, I don't think anybody necessarily cares that much. Just I hope it's well, good. Here's yeah. the thing. Everyone's trying. This is a, a thing that all the streaming services, and I think they're all going to fail, by the way. Uh, they're all trying to figure out, oh, we can predict what you'll want to hear next. Mm-hmm. Now, Netflix tried to do the same thing about five years ago where they spent all this money building these algorithmic programs uh, to, to sort of give people suggestions and recommendations about what to watch. Uh, and they sunk a ton of money into this. They even had a big contest where a lot of computer scientists got involved. Finally, they just abandoned it. They said, we're giving up. We're no longer going to predict what people want to watch. Here's a menu of movies. Watch whatever you want. We, <laughs> you know, we give up. We can't model or account for the perversity of human taste. And I imagine most of the music streaming services may hit this wall as well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I know the labels spend a lot of time now, especially as concerning playlisting uh, in meetings. And, you know, they have their own different services, especially on, on Spotify, like Digster, for example, I think might be Sony's. Um, but they, they're all trying to find the perfect playlist or playlist uh, options for people so that they can go. And that's their, the way for the labels to expose uh, consumers to new music because... Yeah, the, the problem is they can't model... You know, all of these are run by these sort of highly rational but you know, possibly autistic nerds who don't really <laughs> understand how the human brain works. Yeah. You know, if my mood changes, the algorithm's not going to capture that. And if I want to be in a different mood, I'm just going to make a radical break with what I was just listening to. It's not mm-hmm. predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe they can do it two or three songs out, but honestly, I just don't see it working. Well, the Apple's pitch is that Jimmy and Dre know better than you what you want to sure, hear when sure, you're sure they do. Yeah, yeah. When you're whatever, <laughs> you know. You the book. Uh, I'd like you to talk about the uh, interesting. Uh, I found it interesting and somewhat comical too. How Doug Doug Morris got on the bandwagon for YouTube and then eventually Vivo, of course. Yeah, this is very interesting. So Doug had been. Uh, a refused Nick for a while there. And he finally, Steve Job, Doug was running a universal music group in the the 2000s, and this was the largest music label in the world. And he had signed almost every major rapper. Uh, So he had Jay-Z, he had Lil Wayne, he had Rick Ross, he uh, he just had everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was losing money, or his business was not losing money, but losing uh, losing revenue every year. It kept shrinking, and he kept having to fire people. Um, So he sort of was on the lookout to try and figure out if there's any way to, to, to beat digital downloads. And he goes to see his 12- or 13-year-old grandson in Long Island and uh, asks him, well, how do, you, how do you get your music? And the kid says, well, come up to my room. I'll show you my computer. And together they go and they watch you know, a YouTube stream of 50 Cents in the club, uh, which Doug Morris had overseen the release of. Uh, and Doug notices that right next to the video, there's these little interstitial ads. 
that Google is displaying uh, to, to, to the kid. And Doug realizes, well, this is a source of revenue that I'm not sharing him. And the next day, he writes, uh, he writes a nasty letter to all the video hosting services saying, you know, either start giving us some of this ad money or we pull all our videos from your site. Uh, sure enough, very quickly, they started to play ball. And as he realized that there was money in this thing, he, he, he founded uh, the music video syndication service called Vivo. Uh, and, and I'm sure if, if anybody watches online videos on YouTube, especially younger people, they've seen this everywhere. Uh, so now this is a branded channel that almost acts like the new MTV, practically. Uh, and Morris thinks this will be his legacy. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, just as a quick aside, um, that grandson, uh, I, did you ever get the name of the grandson? Was it Doug Morris? Was that, I don't know his name. No. The reason being is we have a student here who interned at Sony this summer. and uh, huh. for, for Which a, Morris now runs. Mm-hmm. Yes, which Doug Morris went from uh, – he's the only guy ever to run Warner, Sony, and Universal, and now he's at Sony. Yeah, he had an unbelievable career. Yes, and um, so uh, our student is is interning there, and he goes into a room with another intern, and he says, hey, uh, what's your name? And the guy said, Doug Morris. And so the uh, our student like did a double take, and, and the guy said, yeah, my, my grandfather is Doug Morris. And so when the student told me this, I, I, we had just read your book and just yeah. read the story about the grandson is the one who turned Doug Morris onto YouTube. And so I said, this yeah. is Giancarlo Cordasco is a student. And yeah. I said, uh, Giancarlo, I think uh, that's the grandson from this book. So I told him to buy your book and read could it. Could be. Could be. That's yeah. pretty funny. But it was, it was very funny after, after reading the book just like a few weeks before. Uh, why hasn't... Wow, I'd love to meet young Doug uh, if he's around. <laughs> why hasn't Warner joined Vivo? Uh, because uh, Vivo was a joint production between Universal and Sony. Correct. And I'm not, I don't actually know the boardroom politics here, I should say. Yeah. But for some reason, Warner just wasn't invited or didn't participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have their own thing. So, you know, they brand their videos with the Warner logo. And you'll see that for, for some big-name artists. Mm-hmm. Um, but because Universal and Sony are the two biggest, and between them I think they control well over two-thirds of the market, uh, primarily when you see a co- high-concept, high-budget music video, it's going to be distributed through Vivo. Mm-hmm. What's, what's interesting, as you're, you're talking about that, I recall another uh, sort of note you mentioned in the book. I was with the Universal Music Group when Universal and Sony worked together to create their online uh, digital download retail store that failed miserably, and, and you mentioned a forget. Yes, press, yes, play. press That's play. what right. it was horrible. It was awful. And even when we were there, and that was Doug Morris's baby. That yes. was their attempt. That was their first, uh, you know, just an abortion, just a horrible <laughs> attempt to right. try and create <laughs> something where you could legally purchase an MP3. The thing was, they were trying to block you from really using these things the way they were intended to be used because they still were attached and trying to preserve the, uh, the profits that they were earning from the compact disc. Mm-hmm. It was just really, really hard to let that go mm-hmm. um, because it had, for 20 years, made all of these guys' careers, basically. You know, uh, I, I'm, you know so, going, so going back and abandoning that was very hard for them. It was like, you know, breaking up with a, with a beautiful girl. But, it, but it's interesting because then they did succeed with, with Vivo. So they did learn. Eventually they succeeded with It took them over a decade, but they eventually did learn. Right. It took them over a decade. Essentially what happened is they missed one entire format. They missed the entire digital download phase, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And teenagers really built it for them. Okay? Teenagers built the infrastructure, the torrents. 
the compressed files, they sourced them, distributed, and built a shadow retail alternative that, that took over the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until the move to the next, uh, the next format switch, and it really didn't begin in earnest till 10 or 11 or 12 uh, with streaming that they managed to start to recapture it. But they're still not there. The industry is still, I think, less than half its size and maybe even closer to a third uh, than it was at its peak in 2000. Oh, yeah. Um, I do contend, though, if we think about vinyl and stereo in the mid-50s and then about, oh, 30 years later, we moved to the CD and putting the tapes and the 8-track, 4-track and cassette, putting that all aside... And then 30 years later, we're, or even a little earlier than that, we're, we're due for a new format. We're due for a new configuration. And yet they continue. Yeah, well, a lot of this music in my lifetime, if I think about it, I purchased the same album or yeah. paid for it anyway. For right. That's how they made the money, of course. Right, right. So, okay, we had another you know, uh, In some ways, it's like, why, did, you know, why, have I bought, why have I bought you know, Led Zeppelin on cassette? Compact disc, MP3, and stream. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at what point? At what, what point do I get to stop paying for this? Yeah. All right. We haven't talked about Mr. Glover at all. Maybe Mr. Dell Glover. The profile of him and how he, you know, all of that that you go into the book uh, quite well. Right. So this is really the the he's really the soul of the book. And Glover, this is in case you missed it, this is the factory worker who who worked in North Carolina. And over the course of seven or eight years, leaked 2,000 compact discs out of the plant and uploaded them to the Internet. Uh, you know, and he worked for Universal. So Doug Morris technically was his boss. Mm-hmm. You know, he was several layers of hierarchy above him. Uh, but Dell was the inside man. As fast as Morris could go out and sign these popular acts, these huge rappers that were selling millions of albums, uh, Glover would turn around and leak them right out of the plant. Uh, he'd take them home burn them from compact disc to MP3, and then send them to his confederates online. Within about 24 hours, that stuff would be available on the pirate networks, on the torrent set, uh, sites, on you know the peer-to-peer file-sharing services like Kazaa and LimeWire, and millions of copies of the stuff would be on iPods around the globe. Now, was anyone... The title of my book, I call him the, the patient zero of music piracy. Right. And really, so much of it can just be traced back, all the sourcing of it, all to this one guy. Was anyone making money at that time on this besides Glover? Well, here's what's interesting. Yeah. So this underground had an ethos that the leaks were not to be sold. It was really seen as sort of a subculture of sharing and trade yeah. with almost a utopian vision. But it was a little dark. It was a little underground. Um, but you weren't supposed to profit off this. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Glover did not obey those rules, and he didn't really have to because he was such a great source for them that no matter what he did, they weren't going to kick him out. Online, if you were leaking music, you could have access to other leaks. So DVDs uh, that weren't supposed to come out for weeks, Oscar screeners, uh, you know, video games that were very popular. Madden NFL might appear on a pirate server mm-hmm. a month before you could buy it in the store. And Glover realized this material was very valuable. So he started to download it. At his house, he built uh, racks of these DVD duplicating towers. And he could burn, you know, 50 or 60 discs in an hour. He'd take those, uh, put them on spindles, and start selling them as a bootlegger out of the trunk of his car. Mm-hmm. 
very soon, uh, there was so much demand for this stuff because he was uh, out, out competing the other bootleggers. They didn't have access to the same secret supply of leaked media that he did. And he became probably the largest bootlegger in the state. He branched out to uh, local barber shops in North Carolina. Right. He'd show up and give one of his confederates, a barber, you know, 400 or 500 discs on a spindle, leave it with a guy on consignment, and come back at the end of the week and collect as much as $1,000 or more in cash. Mm-hmm. His best barbers made more money selling bootleg DVDs than they did cutting hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he actually made an empire out of this. Uh-huh. All right. Um, we have a question from another student named uh, Angel. Um, they ask, um, why didn't Doe Glover get a longer jail sentence? He cost the music industry millions in losses. Great question. Uh, Doug was eventually, or sorry, Dell was eventually busted in uh, in 2007. Uh, he stood trial. or didn't stand trial, but pleaded guilty in 2010. And he went to jail for all of three months. Uh, now, why? Well, he was part of this conspiracy, as I said. And although he was a very important player, he didn't actually run the thing. Uh, and let me just go on a tangent here. Classically, you sort of think of a model of organized crime. It's usually a bunch of guys who know each other very well. So with the mafia, they're literally all in the same family, or they grew up in the same neighborhood, and they've all done time together. So that when one of them gets busted, there's sort of these social ties, you know, and even threats against their family that prevent them from, from snitching on one another. Online, it's almost completely different. It's almost the exact opposite. So Glover would log into these chat rooms, okay, that were online, and everybody would be there under a pseudonymous screen handle, and they'd all be protecting their identities. So he might spend years in a chat channel with somebody, but not know anything about them other than their screen name. The controller of the group was a guy who went by the screen handle Kali, K-A-L-I, and that's the Hindu god of death. (laughs) Uh, And the FBI was very, very interested in busting Kali, because Kali had recruited Glover into this group, And he'd also put plants all over the world. Uh, So inside Sony, inside Bertelsmann, uh, guys in Japan, guys in Italy, guys in the UK. And he was sort of the puppet master of this whole thing, running essentially the spy network against the the music industry. And the FBI really wanted to bust the top guy. So Glover agreed to testify against whoever they thought Kali was, which turned out to be a guy named Adil Kasim. Uh, who lived with his mom, right. all things, in, a, in, in an apartment in California. Uh, the trial of Kasim happened in, in 2010, and Glover testified, but Kasim was found not guilty. But I think because he cooperated, uh, the Fed still went with his plea deal, and he ended up not serving very much mm-hmm. time. Okay. Um, we have another question from, uh, this one's from Bianca. She says, how would you feel if I download, downloaded your book for free? Uh, actually, people do this all the time. I also pirated my own book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was interested in how quickly my book would leak. Uh, there's an underground torrent site called what.cd that I, uh, that I have access to. And I noticed that someone had posted a request for a leaked copy of my book well in advance, probably three or four weeks in advance. Um, as, as my publication date grew nearer, they, they do something called a bounty for this stuff where they'll offer you sort of 20 or 30 gigabytes in download credit if you can provide a valuable file. 
And mine grew over to 100 gigabytes because obviously the pirates are interested in reading about themselves. <laughs> it leaked probably 24 to 48 hours before uh, the official launch date. I'm not sure how. I think probably somebody in New Zealand did it because that's right across the international dateline, and they would have the first that could access to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately, three or 400 people downloaded it and started seeding it. It appeared in the Pirate Bay very quickly and in various mm-hmm. digital stores, lockers, and on certain sites that actually sell bootleg books for profit. I was cool with it. Uh, I mean, I can't complain, obviously. Uh, when you're a writer, you know, you want people to be interested in your work. And if people are reading it, to me, I'm happy. You know, if someone takes my book out of the library, I'm not mad either. Um, so mm-hmm. I guess it depends on your perspective. I know some authors get furious. Uh, I'm cool with it. Right. But what, what about here, because uh, when we compare sort of the book to uh, an album release, and you put out something back in, uh, the book came out in June, correct? Right. I think right. it was June. Right. And then um, back in, I think it was April, there was an article in the New Yorker magazine, which was pretty much the full Del Glover story. Um, a, right. A so the New Yorker essentially just came and offered me uh, to, uh, to do an adapted excerpt of my book uh, and paid me for that. So that's essentially just an excerpt from the book. Okay. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions was, was that purely promotional or that was you got paid? So how does your... Uh, publisher, yeah, they paid me. Appreciate so they, they, that. They, so essentially, the so essentially, the, what happens is as as a book gets close to publication, it's a bit like how an artist might shop around an exclusive for a single, let's say. Um, so they're offering different magazines, uh, you know, the the option to to go with an excerpt from my book. You know, the New Yorker said, sure, well, you know, we'd like to do it, and I was overjoyed because obviously it's the premier uh, mm-hmm. you know, literary news journalism publication history probably um so i went with them all right so what's next for you what are you working on um uh, what am i working on i'm working on an article about hedge funds right now (laughs) um you know actually i have a background in finance i I worked for a hedge fund or various hedge funds for about six or seven years um so i kind of want to go back and take a look at that industry and say what's happening now uh over the longer term I'm very interested right now in uh, artificial intelligence technology. I think there's some good stories there that haven't been picked up on yet. You know, we're living in a time where this digital uh, technology really is reshaping our lives. The way we lead our lives, it really is, is altered and changed in unpredictable ways by the appearance of these disruptive and kind of crazy uh, new, new pieces of tech. Hmm. And I think over time, I'd like to write more about that. Mm. Has has anybody approached you about uh, turning the book into a film? Yes, uh, yeah. I can't say too much about that, but but yes, that is because it sounds like a great. Yeah, uh, it would be a great film on HBO. You know, I mean that Del Glover yeah. character is so such a rich character. I mean, right. you could have gotten away with just making the book about Del Glover, and you would have had us. You know, so right. Well, I think I had. I think I wanted different perspectives, but Glover is absolutely the soul of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing we didn't mention was how I even got the CDs out of the plant. This is probably yeah. I was just I was going to ask you that when we got on a tangent, right? Um, you know, he. Uh, you know, the Universal who he worked for understood that these leaks were really hurting them, and they were trying to block him. Uh, and so they installed this security regime, kind of like a customs uh, station at the airport, where you swipe your employee badge as you as you leave the plant. Four out of five times, you get a green light, and you get to go through. But occasionally, one out of time, you get a red light. When you get the red light, they take you over to the side, and with an aluminum-detecting wand, 
you know, go up and down your body looking for the thin aluminum core in the compact disc. But what Glover realized after watching them do this to all of his coworkers for years was that the wand would keep going off, particularly on people's belt buckles. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a small town in North Carolina where everyone would wear these big belt buckles. And when the wand hit the belt buckle, they didn't actually make you take your belt off. They would just white wave you through. Mm -hmm. So what he and his smuggling confederates did was they would take the gloves off the packaging, or sorry, take the discs off the packaging line at the plant, wrap them in latex gloves, and then stuff them behind their belt buckles as they were exiting the plant. And in this way, amazingly, he got 2,000 discs out. Now, I should say now that you couldn't get away with this. Their, their security regime had improved. But this was the method that they used. And the other thing was that greed got them because they had quit. Greed did get them. Greed did get them. One of the most interesting things is they knew, okay, so the FBI knew this was happening somewhere in America. They just couldn't figure out where and who precisely was doing it. But they, they could see that someone was leaking from inside because the music would appear so much earlier, even before it had shipped to stores. So they knew somewhere in America someone was leaking deep, deep inside, like a deep mole in inside man. And conversely, Kali, who ran this sort of illegal music conspiracy group, knew that they were looking for him, and he would do all sorts of counterintelligence strategies. In early 2007, uh, one of their servers went down, and Kali finally said, you know what, there's too much heat, we're getting too close, I'm shutting down the group. And the name of the group was Rabid Neurosis, RNS. I'm shutting this group down. And he quit. But one of the interesting things about the guys who did this is that there was something addictive about it. Once you started, it was very, very hard to stop. And eventually, both he and Glover came back. And that's when they got caught. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we're actually caught right they, now with uh, a time crunch. So sure, you've sure. been awesome, Stephen yeah, Witt. Great. Of, Thank you. Yes, Stephen Witt of. This was, this, yeah, this was a great talk. Um, if you want to see how the guys got caught, and it's a great part of the story. Uh, pick up my book, How Music Got Free. Yeah. No, definitely, right. definitely. How Music Got Free, Stephen Witt. By the way, you should know that Steve Marconi has assigned uh, is it two classes to read your book. Exactly. And, All right. And exactly. I've assigned uh, two. Homework. Have fun, kids. Yeah. <laughs> I assigned uh, three classes to read the article in The New Yorker. So, yeah, it was a good um, read. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so. I may ask for an autographed copy of your book if I like it that much. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, sure, I could do it. <laughs> there we go. Wow. Well, well thank you, Stephen. Yeah, very thanks. much for appearing thanks on Music so Biz 101 and more. We're going to take a break right now, and then we will be right back with our final words. But Stephen Witt, how music got free. Get free. Thank you, Stephen, very much. Have a great night. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. So, Dave, we're deep into the semester. How's it going? Great. You've been busy on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock? Yep. Co-hosting Music Biz 101 and more with you. Who have our guests been? Indie artist and alum Lauren Marsh, PR guru George Dassinger, Rosie Lopez, president of Tommy Boy Entertainment, and Adam Kornfeld, Rod Stewart's booking agent. I miss them. Is there any way I can still hear their words of wisdom? Sure. Every show becomes a podcast that you can hear on our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or on the Stitcher mobile app. And it's all free. Who's coming up next? Grammy-winning producer Harry Wanger, Warner VP Dan Goldberg, Sean Rosenberg, the engagement director at Huge. Oh, that's big. <laughs> I get it. The guests keep getting better and better. Our listeners, too. That's Music Biz 101 and more every, every Wednesday, Wednesday at 8 p.m. Only on 88.7 WPSC Brave New Radio. 
You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. That is true. You are listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio 88.7 WPSC-FM with the campus William Patterson University. And we have been very happy to have Stephen Witt, the author of How Music Got Free. Great. Yes. Great. Great tremendous night. interview. Yep. And, and uh, I'm Professor Philp, and we have Dr. Esteban. You guys are speechless over here. Yeah, well, it's hard to talk with uh, minimalist. Cole. Yeah, <laughs> it's a minimalist <laughs> broadcast. That's right. So, who's on next week? We're working on our guest for next week, but uh, we're probably going to get somebody from the Warner Music Group because we're working on it. Our friend Paul Sinclair from Atlantic Records has promised that he was going to get somebody. How about the week after? The week after that, I believe you were booked on the spot. This was just a little hole. I will tell you who is after. That uh, create, get rid of the dead air that's about to happen well, while, I, while I look at this. There's very little dead air with you. <laughs> that's that's sure. Cole, say something. Yes. Uh, How do you like student co-hosting? Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Good. Good. Uh, yeah. Cole, man of many words here. Okay. Right. The uh, Coming up uh, in the very near future, we have, okay, on Fred Goodman. On October oh, that's 7th, right. we have another, another great author. book this summer. Uh, what was it called? Because Alan Klein, the man who mm, led the, managed the Beatles, the Stones, and changed the Right, he was business manager, yeah. though. That should be noted. Yes. Um, but yes, it's the great um, story of Alan Klein from actually nothing to one of the uh, and strongest men in the industry, actually, in the early 70s, and his company is still doing well today, even though he's passed away. Russia, Abco. After that, Joe Riccatelli, who we mentioned earlier from yes. uh, RCA, which is part of Sony. After that, Linda Lawrence from CSAC. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Dan Goldberg from the Warner Music Group, uh, people from OK Good Records, and uh, we have a special show. We're booked. Yeah, we got a lot going on. In fact, uh, we have a big promotional uh, event co- happening December 4th here at William Patterson called Collage, which we're going to talk more about. And the uh, two days before the, that event, we're going to have a special collage show here. So a lot uh-huh. going on at, at uh, WPC. Except for Brady. next week. Next week, there's nothing going on. But we're going to have uh-huh. somebody next week. And if you sign up for our email list, go to musicbiz101wp.com. You'll be able to get the, our emails and find out exactly who is going to be our guest We could always week. do a rerun. We would never do that. Uh, uh, we would okay. probably, the best thing would probably be for me to just come on and sing. So uh, why don't I not sing for at the, the ring run. Yeah, the, the re that'd be fine. i okay. go for the rerun. Yeah, so we want to thank you all for listening. We want to thank everybody for all their tweets today. We got to uh, quite a few tweets. Uh, last week, I think we got to one. This week, we got to quite a few, which was great. And so can we thank the tweeters? Thank you, tweeters. And we want to thank Stephen Witt, How Music Got Free. We want to thank him for being on board as well. We want to thank Jess Frank, who is the producer. Thank you, Frank. Thanks to Frank. Jess. The Jess Frank. The Jess Frank. We want to thank Cole Mazaleski for... Got it right. There, I got it that time, and I said it in the proper uh, dialect. We want to thank you for being our student co-host. Thank you, Cole. 
course, we want to thank a doctor. He's a doctor, Esteban Marconi. We'll be back next week. And I'm your professor, David Philp. And I'm saying to you, a one, two, three, adios!